Very nice to see so many people here this evening. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you here. We're talking this evening about what's been one of the sort of big and most spectacular issues in African development over the last decade, which is to say the land reform in Zimbabwe and its long-term consequences. Um, I was doing work in Zimbabwe myself. I'm Teddy Brett from the Department of International Development. Uh, In the early 21st century, Um, And that was a point at which, after the enforced land reform, some people would call it the enforced land seizures, uh, Zimbabwe appeared to be going down the tubes in a very serious and ultimately irreversible way. Uh, We all know by the time I was there in the early, I was there in 2001, no, 2002, 3, 4, and 5, uh, one had reached a point where people were queuing for petrol, where food was having to be imported, where a lot of people were dependent on handouts. Uh, And the story was that land reform had totally failed, um, that a few that farms had been given mainly to cronies weren't operating, um, and that... uh, small farmers who'd been given land were unable to use it and were just operating on a subsistence basis. So I'm very pleased uh, to be able to listen to people who've been in Zimbabwe recently uh, and who are looking at what's happened, what is it now, 13, 12, 13 years down the line. Uh, All of you who are sitting here can get uh, a lot more information Uh, from the book that they've just produced and that's the starting point for this discussion, Zimbabwe Takes Back Its Land. Joe Hanlon uh, is from the Open University uh, and Jeanette Manjengwa is actually from the University of Zimbabwe uh, and Teresa Smart, who's the third author who won't be speaking uh, on the first round Uh, is from the Institute of Education in London. Uh, I should also say that we're very pleased to have here Charlie Tafts, uh, who's the chairman of the Commercial Farmers Union in Zimbabwe, uh, who is sitting over there having his picture (laughs) taken at this moment, uh, who who in fact um, offered to come after we put the panel together Uh, and we'll be asking him to make some comments uh, at the end of these discussions. The speakers are hoping to get through their their presentations in just over half an hour or so, uh, and we hope to have an extended discussion after that. So thank you very much. amazed at the audience. Thank you for all coming. Um, Our book is about the land reform in Zimbabwe and especially we're looking at what is on the ground now. And so we spent a lot of time talking to farmers, looking at research that's been done recently on the land reform. But 
One of the things we found is that this raises a set of very much broader issues, particularly about the merits of large-scale farming versus small-scale farming. And this is not a new issue. The farm-scale debate goes back at least a century to the Soviet debates about state farms versus small farms. Um, and it's still going on. And last year, we saw all the press coverage about land grabs in Africa. The G8 at its meeting in Washington last May actually agreed to use aid finance to help large agribusinesses have large tracts of land in Africa. And there's been quite a promotion of mechanized large-scale farms. Yet last week, we also had a campaign which was just launched by all of the major NGOs here in Britain called Enough Food If. And they said that the biggest opportunity to reduce hunger is to support small-scale farms. Now, Zimbabwe is interesting because it's seen both models. In the 1930s and the 1950s, you had the land grab in which half of Zimbabwe was given over to large white farmers and the rest of the Zimbabweans were pushed onto the smaller plots. So that set the precedent of the large-scale versus small-scale model within then Rhodesia. At independence in 1980, you then had a shift back to supporting small-scale farmers. Well, the, this really starts with the Land Apportionment Act of 1930, which defined 51% of, of Rhodesia, the best land, as being European, and 30% as being native land. Yet, at independence, white farmers... What, sorry. There never were more than about 6,000 white farmers. They had about 1,000 hectares each. They had huge subsidy from the government. We calculate that the equivalent in current money would be about 30,000 pounds per farm per year in subsidy. The white farmers had guaranteed markets. They had differential pricing. Whites were paid more than blacks for their maize, for instance. And they had a huge extension service, science and technology support. Rhodesia was one of the first places to develop hybrid maize seeds. And yet, only one-third of the arable land was used. A recent World Bank report, which came out in November, again talks about the underutilization of the land by the white farmers. <coughs> the other thing is that the white farmers were not very successful. 30% of them were insolvent at independence, bankrupt. They survived on subsidy. Another 30% only broke even. They fed themselves, but they didn't make a profit. So it was the rest who were doing relatively well. And 5% of the white farmers were doing spectacularly well. And they're the ones that are always held up as the success of large-scale commercial farming in Zimbabwe. But they're a very small group. Now, what you had at independence was a specific shift to support small-scale farming. The, particularly a shift of maize from the com white commercial farms to the black communal farmers. And this was done by shifting the marketing system, the extension system, the input system 
from the white sector to the black sector. It also meant paying higher prices now to black farmers instead of white farmers, just the reverse of the colonial policy. And it was spectacularly successful. Within a couple of years after independence, maize production had jumped hugely. And it was mostly being produced by small-scale black farmers. You also had, in the first years of independence, the first land reform. 75,000 farmers got land, which made it the largest land reform in Africa at that point. It was under the willing seller, willing buyer policy of the Lancaster House Agreement, which meant that the government could only take for, for land reform farms that white farmers were willing to sell. And that meant that exactly the unprofitable farmers on the poor land sold their land and the good land wasn't sold. But it worked. And we saw a move of the land reform farmers into cash crops, cotton, sunflower, other crops, and real accumulation by these new land reform farmers. The other surprising move to small farming was by the white farmers themselves because it was a major shift to horticulture. And horticulture, this is flowers and mange to peas and so on, require relatively little land. So where these huge white farms had existed before, suddenly they were running on relatively few hectares very intensively. The outcome of this was that the Zimbab black Zimbabweans saw more and more land which wasn't being used, was being inadequately used, and that finally led to the two th occupations in 2000, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But one of the things that you have to say about land reform in general is that one of the experiences, it takes a generation for a new farmer to take control of their farm and to become really productive. We saw that with the white farmers who came in in the 1940s and 1950s. We've seen it again with the land reform farmers from 1980. And this is a kind of a global phenomenon. It takes a generation for farmers to, to really take control. The other thing, which was a very specific problem for Zimbabwe, was the hyperinflation, which reached its peak in 2008. And that made it difficult for all Zimbabweans, but as for, the, for the new farmers as well. From 2009, Zimbabwe has been using the US dollar as a currency, and that has made a dramatic and very rapid change. So the first question that we want to ask is, how are the new farmers doing? Um, this is World Bank data. This comes from a World Bank report which was released in November. Um, we compare against the average for the 1990s, um, looking at the two most recent seasons, 2010-2011 was a very good season, 2011-2012 was not a very good season, the rainfall patterns were very bad. But what you see is that maize production now is creeping up toward the levels it was in the 1990s, that Groundnuts are more than they were. Small grains are kind of up where they should be. Tobacco production is increasing again. Cotton production is going up. So what we are seeing, in a sense, is that 
10 years after the land reform, three years after the dollarization, we're actually seeing an agricultural recovery which is taking place in Zimbabwe. Now, the land reform, the second land reform, was 170,000 families. It's a very large number, by far the largest land reform in Africa. But most Zimbabweans still live in communal areas. And so it gives you a chaotically mixed system in which you have communal farmers, you have old resettlement farmers, you have what are called A1 farmers, which is where a white farm was broken up into 50 smaller farms, typically six hectares arable. You have larger A2 farms, where a white farm was broken up into 10 farms, and you've still got some large farms. So any data about Zimbabwe <coughs> is confused. But this is from Tendai Beatty, the finance minister, and it's production by sector for the 2011 harvest. And what's important about this is half of the maize is now being produced by the resettlement farmers. 40% of the tobacco is now being produced by the resettlement farmers. And so the resettlement farmers have become a major engine in agricultural production. Now, the... What, when you talk about production, that, that isn't the only issue. It isn't how much these people produce. You, have, you can evaluate farming and the land reform also on questions of how it affects poverty. And one of the things that is important about the land reform is that the new farmers are less capital intensive and more labor intensive. And that has led to a dramatic change in the workforce. The best estimate is that there were about 167,000 full-time farm workers before the land reform. Probably 100,000 of those are still employed on estates um, in timber and a number of other areas. But it does mean that there's at least 67,000 people who lost full-time jobs Many of them lost housing as well. What's interesting about that number is that's almost identical to the number of people who lost jobs during the structural adjustment period in the 90s. So we've got two very large blocks of people who lost full-time wage employment. And that's a very real issue. But what is dramatic is that these new farmers are much more labor-intensive. So the estimate is that there's about 550,000 family members working full-time on these farms, and they are hiring 350,000 full-time workers. These little six-hectare farmers are hiring full-time workers. So we now have a million people employed on the land compared to 167,000 under the regime of the white farmers. So that's a dramatic change. And, of course, these people are supporting families and so on and so on. So that has a, an impact in the transformation of poverty in Zimbabwe. Now, I've been talking about statistics. Um, we want to talk about real farmers. And so I'm going to pass to my co-author, Jeanette, and let her talk about real farmers instead of numbers. Thanks, Joe. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, 
Joe's talked about the broader picture, and as he says, I'm going to give you sort of um, uh, some examples of these farmers, and I'm especially going to uh, focus on women resettlement farmers. Uh, This is a group of uh, women who worked with us uh, during our research, and they're also farmers. Um, Now, besides uh, this research, we also used... um, a lot of the, the extensive research that's been done uh, about Zimbabwe's land reform. There are uh, numerous uh, large, long, um, long-term studies about the land reform. Um, and um, from this research, one of the things was, that was, um, came out was that about initially 18% of the small farms were allocated to women. But more recently, about uh, 30% of the small farms that were transferred through reallocations or um, uh, inheritance were transferred to women. Now, apart from the women who who were given land in their own right as women-headed households, the women also benefited from the land reform through their husbands who were allocated land and they farmed together as a family. And um, the, the government has actually introduced a policy where both names of the spouses are on the, um, the offer letter or the permit or the lease that's given. Uh, but even though uh, there are still problems, you know, when there's divorce or when the husband dies. But for us, when, uh, what we found was even more interesting and important was the fact that um, the women are actually making decisions about farming together with their husbands. They, 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 they are, you know, they're making decisions, whereas... Um, the farm may be in the name of the, the husband, but they work together as a team, and we saw a lot of evidence of that. Now, one of these, one of the members of the group is um, Agnes. Agnes joined the Liberation War as a young a teenager, but unfortunately, she um, lost her leg to a, a landmine accident um, in Mozambique, and she was one of the leaders of the occupations in the Goromans district in 2000. Uh, she uh, was given um, allocated land and she's built a brick house on it and looks after her three grandchildren um, after her daughter died. Now, her main crop is maize. Um, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization estimates um, an average yield of maize on the white farms was uh, about four tons per hectare. That's average, obviously some were more. Um, now, Agnes is actually doing better than that. Okay. This is, at the end there, in pink, this is Esther. Um, she's actually getting eight tons per hectare uh, from her maize. Now, she farms on six hectares in uh, Mazoe, which is, uh, has some of the best uh, farmland in Zimbabwe, fertile soils, um, uh, better rainfalls. Now, she, she, grew, she was a teacher, but she grew up on the farm. Um, she, uh, she uses every inch of her farm, and she also has irrigation. Now, uh, and she has a winter crop as well, some maize and soya beans, and then um, maybe wheat in the, in the, um, the winter, but yeah, irrigated. She has six workers, but she plows all her profits back into the farm, and she's been able to get uh, two tractors and has bought some more ir- irrigation pipes. Uh, she produces ground nuts, and uh, she has a peanut butter uh, machine, and she makes uh, peanut butter or dovey um, and sells it. <laughs> uh, so 
we were amazed, you know, by what she'd done in such with six hectares. And so we said, well, you know, ha, um, where did she get all these things from? So she picked up a handful of dirt, and she said, it's all from the profits, you know, from the farm and my hard work. Um, Esther it helps other farmers as well. She's a role model. She inspires and, and helps the other farmers in, in her area. Now, both Esther and Agnes, who we looked um, previously, they're, uh, they're both becoming serious commercial farmers on their small plots of land. And now, uh, in this slide, we see in the middle there, this Tabith, um, which is Rochester Farm. Um, she's not a big commercial farmer, but um, she's uh, quite content. And she told us that to her, what's important is peace of mind, the land here from the land that she owns. Uh, she was a second wife, and she shared one hectare of land with the, uh, the other wife in the communal areas, you know, quite a sort of um, infertile field. So she joined the occupations in 2000 and was allocated a small farm um, with six hectares of productive land. She, she grows maize and um, groundnuts, and she also has a peanut butter. Oh, she, she, I think she's grinding. She doesn't have the machine, but she's grinding the, the peanuts to make the dovey. Um, she sells the maize and, and the peanut butter, and she gets a profit of about 1,500 a year. Okay, it's not a lot of money, but, and she's not a you know, big commercial farmer, but she's now out of poverty. And as she says, she has peace of mind. Now, obviously, you know, of course, these sim single examples prove nothing, but they do give a face to the land reform. You know, because otherwise we're just talking about numbers and statistics and percentages. So I just wanted to give you a feel of, um, you know, these are real people who are working hard and, uh, you know, it's changing, the land reform is changing their life. Now, we used a range of studies in the book, uh, to write the book, and we also, including looking more closely at uh, three farms, three former white farms in Mashonaland Central and uh, Mashonaland East. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Mashonalands, this is where um, the best agricultural land is. It's, it's the so-called breadbasket of, um, of Zimbabwe. So here we see um, three, Kiora Farm, Springdale and, and um, Brookmead Farm. And we surveyed all the 110 farmers on, on these farms. And um, as you can see here, these, um, the bars on the graphs uh, are individual farmers. And it shows their production, their, uh, their gross, uh, the gross, the gross um, crop income for uh, 2010 to uh, 2011 uh, season. And as you can see, there's a lot of variation. And by the way, these farmers also grow their own food as well for household food security. Now, as with the white farmers that Joe mentioned, there's also a spread. You know, some are doing very well, some in the middle, and some not doing very well. And if you take this line, $2,500, um, at the time we did the research, this was the, about the amount of money that a teacher or a civil servant would be getting at that time. And so, uh, you know, uh, we would consider people above this as, you know, com they're earning a living, living commercially. Now, those who are below the uh, 1,250 here are obviously struggling and they're in trouble. Now, 
I just want to point to Kiora. This seems to be you know, standing out as uh, having a lot of production. This is because they've got uh, two crops a year, uh, the rain-fed summer crop and the um, irrigated winter crop. And uh, there's a mixture of crops. They grow maize, sugar beans, soya beans, wheat and barley. And um, the uh, best ten, you know, the... the the, the most successful ones are uh, getting profits of up to, up to 12,000. Now, the, the winter crop, the, uh, there's several of the people who are growing barley as a winter crop, and this is being grown in, 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 um, as a contract, as contract farming, to a neighboring white farmer, John Soule. And he, so this shows the poten potential of um, productive collaboration with the white farming community. So, as you see that the spread here, okay, there's a spread of, um, of, of uh, success or failure. Now, we were particularly interested to find out what actually makes the successful farmers successful. You know, what, what are the factors involved? And from our research, we found six factors. So these are what we found. They're not the only factors. There are other factors as well. But these are what we found to be important. First of all, you needed to have money to start. Now, the World Bank, in a, its new study, says that new farmers in Zimbabwe are seriously undercapitalized. You know, most have no financial assistance whatsoever. So they had to provide all their own um, capital. So you know, uh, they have own some source of capital. And um, some mortgaged houses, some use their savings, some were working and could use their income and um, yeah often a spouse, a spouse was working and the other one would go to the farm um, so there'd be some extra input, uh, money for, for, the, for the inputs and things um, for example the case of Esther who we saw when she started farming in 2003 uh, her husband who's now dead uh, he worked in Harare and he was able to provide the initial support for her Okay. Now, besides the money and resources, what's also important is having a knowledge of farming, um, maybe growing up on a farm and knowing what's involved, and also being uh, studying agriculture at college. And some of the women that we met actually had diplomas and degrees in agriculture. And uh, you um, remember that Zimbabwe has the highest literacy rate in Africa. So our farmers were very literate, you know, um, relatively literate. Okay. Then um, the, the, the learning and the training continues with the good farmers, the successful farmers. They continue to you know, study, have courses. There are several uh, short courses on different aspects of agriculture available, and some of them send their children to um, study agriculture. And they also learn from others like the agritechs, like the agricultural extension officers, visit all the farms and uh, giving advice and support to the farmers. Uh, some of the farmers we met got very useful advice from white farmers who were their neighbors. Other, so looking at successful neighbors, going to field days, that's when farmers come together and share and have demonstrations of um, what they're doing. Um, now, more than just you know, the learning and the, fight, you know, the knowledge, what's important is experimenting. The really successful farmers experimented with different varieties and different crops, and they took risks, and they learned from their mistakes, even though sometimes you know, they, were, they were quite serious mistakes. Okay, now, every farmer we met, 
said that they had a plan. Whether they did or not, we believe the, 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 um, the good farmers actually had a plan and um, they followed it. Uh, so they knew what they were going to do the next season, the next season after that. So it's very important. Um, and linked to this is the re, you know, reinvesting in the farm. There's always the, the, um, the temptation to spend the profits on you know, sending the kids to school, buying clothes and so on. But the, the, good, the successful farmers were very disciplined in that they reinvested the profits into their farms. They bought the inputs and they bought better agricultural equipment. Uh, for example, with Esther, you know, she clearly has a plan. She told us what she was going to do uh, and buy next year and the year after. And as soon as she sold her maize, she used it to buy inputs um, for the next season. Uh, the farming is, as um, all farmers know, you've got to be hands-on. It's hard work, and you've got to get your hands dirty. Um, uh, in Zimbabwe, there's this thing called cell phone farming. It just doesn't work. You've got to be there um, on the farm. Uh, and a number of farmers we talked to st uh, started off managing the farm from a distance. They had the jobs in town, and they'd go like the weekends to the farms. But this didn't work. And quite a few of the uh, farmers we met had given up their jobs. Some, you know, quite professional people had given up the jobs or retired, and they've moved to the farm, and that's now their life. Sorry. They're making a living, um, you know, as commercial farmers. And lastly, there's something intangible. You know, I call it a passion for farming, that, that, that these successful farmers have a passion for farming, and um, they're, they're very enthusiastic. You know, we were always you know, made to go around every field. We walked and walked around, you know, for days and weeks, having you know, been shown everything. So people are very enthusiastic. They're very proud of their farms. They've got this passion. They're determined, and um, they persevere, often against the odds, because it's tough. It's really tough. And like last year, for example, was really very difficult with um, very few inputs available, um, ra not erratic rainfall. So, you know, they, they, are, they persevere. Um, education and urban links are also important. Now, it uh, takes a generation, the 20 years, you know, to make the best of a far use of a farm. So these farmers, the, two, the 2,000 um, resettlement farmers, they're still improving. They've still got, a, you know, 10, ten years to, to, to go to try and improve and become, you know, really successful. Okay? So at this point, I'd like to pass you back to Joe uh, to make some final um, comments. Thank you. So far, we've been talking about what's happening on the ground. And really, that's what the book is about. But history matters, and I think it's important to look at history. And so I want you to think back, not very long ago, within living memory, to when the war veterans arrived, and they violently evicted the farmers from their land. Homes were burned. Families were forced into lorries at gunpoint with only the possessions they could carry. They lost their cattle and whatever investments they made in the farm. It really was horrific. The war veterans were white. It was after the Second World War, and they were coming to take the land. After World War II, 
a hundred thousand families were evicted forcibly and violently from the land. Ian Smith, who was responsible for UDI, for white minority rule, talks in his memoirs about evicting the black farmers that were on the land that he had been given. Now, the families of those people were the ones who led the liberation struggle. They fought to get the land back. At independence, you had the Lancaster House Agreement, which limited the amount of land that was offered to the, for resettlement. Some whites did cooperate with the new government, and there are perhaps 400 white farmers still operating, but many of the whites didn't cooperate. Mostly the poor land was sold to the government. And there was very little land for the black war veterans of the Liberation War. Some of the land that was transferred went to the elites and not to the veterans, not to ordinary people. So that by the 1990s, there was a growing anger. There were protests against President Mugabe in the late 1990s. There were some speeches about land reform, but the Liberation War veterans decided it was all talk. They believed it was never going to happen. So finally, the war veterans took, their, took action. They organized occupations in early 2000. Initially, the government tried to stop the occupations. Ministers went out to farms, gave speeches saying, no, no, give the farms back to the whites. Go home, go home. But the occupiers, it was too late. The occupiers kept the land. They stayed. The occupations continued and expanded. Finally, the government realized it had no choice. So it passed legislation to legalize occupations that had already taken place. They called it the fast-track land reform. But the veterans had learned their lesson from the colonizers. The only way to gain land is to occupy it and to throw off the people who are on that land before. But the veterans stressed that they were acting against the ruling elite. A key point here is the land occupations was not done by ZANU. It wasn't done by the government. It was actually a mass action in opposition to a governing elite. Now, this is a quote from Godfrey Huggins, who was Prime Minister of Southern Rhodesia in 1952. The ultimate possessors of the land will be the people who can make the best use of it. We think that's happened. The small black commercial farmers will do better than the large white farmers. They will create more jobs, and they will do more to reduce poverty. The 2008 global political agreement between the MDC and ZANU-PF, which led to the unity government, which is now in, in Zimbabwe, talks of the irreversibility of the land reform. There are a million people working that land now. There's no going back. Charles Tafts, who is here, um, issued, has issued several statements recently which accept the irreversibility of the land reform. In an interview with the Zimbabwean last week, he said, what we should do as Zimbabweans is to forget the past and forge the way forward. One of the things that struck us in doing this research was the continuing role 
of present and former white farmers. Many of them have moved up the value chain. So you have many former white farmers who are doing supply of various sorts, marketing, equipment supply, and in particular contract farming, which has, imp which has proved to be very important. You remember Jeanette mentioned Kiaora Farm and the barley. That's contract farming for a white, to neighboring white farmer. That is, we think, the way forward. In a speech in September promoting investment, Charles Taft called for foreign investment in agro-processing. Absolutely a sensible idea. We have to create markets. The land reform farmers are becoming successful and have a decade of growth ahead of them. There is no going back. But the issue now is how to move forward. How do we get credit to these people? How do we get inputs to these people? How do we get markets to these people? And how do we organize for the new land reform farmers at least some of the support that the white farmers had 50 years ago? Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's put a lot of uh, very important information on the table uh, and I think especially in that last 10 minutes raised a lot of issues that I think are the key issues that we would like to really see discussed here. Um, I think it's fair to say that a great many injustices and inefficiencies have been perpetuated in the past. Uh, the problem with history is that it doesn't take place on the basis of justice, it takes place on the basis of whoever it is that can manage to take control over things. But of course, history moves forward only when after these things have happened, people who are now in a new situation find ways of resolving problems and particularly of resolving the kinds of conflicts that can keep problems going for a very, very long time. Uh, for me, it, an interesting parallel here is that in 1972, uh, I joined Makerere University in Kampala uh, and watched the whole of the Asian community being put on buses uh, and put onto airplanes and sent out of the country. And I watched soldiers allocating their businesses in Kampala uh, a few months later and a month or two after that I couldn't buy a bag of sugar in a shop or buy, I had to go to Kenya to buy a new tire for my motor car. But when I went back to Uganda in the late 1980s a new government had taken over, a new class of people had actually taken over those businesses and despite the immense losses were beginning to run them better. At that point a new government came into power which in 1974 actually re allowed the Asians to, to, to take their property rights back uh, and some of them came back, the bigger ones actually, and are making an important contribution. Many of the others sold their assets off on and the country has been moving forward for the last 10, 15 years in an unprecedented kind of way. So the interesting question that I think I'd like to sort of focus on here is whether some kind of transition, whether Zambia is not at the point, sorry, Zimbabwe. <laughs> I do know the difference. I, I haven't, I've never been to Zambia, uh, but I have been to 
Zimbabwe several times. Uh, whether Zimbabwe is now at that point that Uganda reached, I think, in the early 1990s, when these old losses and old conflicts can be overcome and some of the things that, um, that Joe has talked about and that I hope Charlie will perhaps make some comments about now can take, can take the country forward because it went a long way backwards just as Uganda did in the 1970s and early 1980s uh, and hopefully we think uh, it may be possible for it to go forward now Obviously, I think a lot of the issues that are going to determine that are going to be resolved at the political level, but these kinds of practical issues are the ones that really have to be resolved. So, Charlie, if you could give us some comments on that. Yeah, thank you, Yes, yes. I don't know whether there are micro... Are there microphones? But if you can just take the platform... Um, Thank you very much, um, and I thank you for the invitation that you've given me, the time you've given me here. Um, a couple of issues here. I was, I was uh, given very short notice on this. I was not aware that this book was indeed being written, and uh, I was asked to comment on it, and I felt that I should be here to comment on it. And I've read some extracts of the book, and it's interesting that um, some, of the, some of the information there is, is, in my view, not correct particularly the spelling of my name. <laughs> in terms of uh, investment in Zimbabwe, I just want to correct a few statements that were made there. Investment in Zimbabwe, <clears throat> yes, of course, we want investment in Zimbabwe. But we need it on a basis where the investments are sound, they are safe, and people are secure in their property rights. We have none of that right now. In terms of the quote, forget the past, Take it in context. What I was saying is the Zimbabwe people has been a long time, 13 years, it's a lost decade plus. We need to resolve our issues, use the past to forge the future. That is what I was referring to. I'd just like to correct a, a few things as well. In terms of uh, Zimbabwe farmers, commercial farmers being insolvent, that is a complete misnomer. In 1999, the default ratio in commercial agriculture with the financial institutions was less than 5%. In 2012, the default ratio in commercial agriculture was over 80%. We just have to look at the facts. Commercial land holdings in, 1990, in 1980 were 15 million hectares of freehold title. By 2000, it was 7.3 million hectares. The land reform was happening, and it was happening in a way where production was increasing, land values were increasing, the economy was booming. And you had a new commercial sector of successful black farmers, well-trained, well-integrated, and well in the value chain. It was happening on a successful basis. It was fully backed up, endorsed by government, supported by European countries, particularly Britain. We had a system in Zimbabwe from 1980. I was part of that system. I bought all my properties within the Zimbabwean government, where when you bought a farm, it first had to be offered to government. 
If the government chose not to take it, they would issue you a certificate of no interest. The sale could proceed. There was no trading without government participation. Government endorsed and government encouraged. And yet we are still being accused of having stolen all the land. 70% of all land, commercial land, was purchased after 1980. So with that in mind, 70% of all commercial land was first offered to government for purchase. Mm -hmm. Let's have a look at the, the facts. In 13 years, we've been net food importers. Right now, we have 1.7 million people facing starvation. We're again appealing to the international community for donor support. Against the backdrop of the country being totally and utterly broke by this reform program. We must also understand that the people with access to land have had over a billion US dollars given to them through mechanization programs, input programs, and others. Where is this? What has happened? Fact, 60% of all industry inputs came from agriculture, both small and large scale. When you destroyed, when the commercial sector was destroyed, industry had a collateral effect. We had the fastest imploding economy outside of a war zone in the history of the world. We now don't even have our own currency. We now are based on a currency dictated to by outside influences. We're not competitive. So this is, I, I said this is Charlie Tafts, who's the chairman of the Zimbabwe Farmers Association. The commercial agriculture sector had 350,000 permanent employees, not 167. There were 2 million people on the land. There's a mass migration from farms into cities. We've had a compounding impact on the rural areas. Towns which were based around agricultural inputs. Maswingo, for example, was built around the cattle industry. Bulawayo, for example, was built around the cattle industry and industrialized. It was an industrialized port. That has now been taken by Messina in South Africa. If we go on crops, tobacco, 2,247,000 tons of tobacco was produced. Last year, 144,000 tons, 144 million kilos. In 2000, when we produced 247 million kilos, Brazil, our biggest single export competitor, was 350 million kilos. They right now are producing 800 million kilos. That is the loss to this country. And we can get back there. Cotton. We had a magnificent cotton enterprise. The majority of it produced by small-scale farmers. Commercial farmers were not big cotton producers. But we had a fantastic integrated value chain of manufacturers and processes of raw cotton lint. We now have a system where contract growers are dictating to those small-scale growers to export raw lint. They have no protection, none whatsoever. Last year, they received a dollar for their lint. This year, they received 35 cents. The poor woman in Mazarabani is now impoverished because of this. There is no protection. And what we're saying is we need to re-establish these value chains. In my view, 
It is very, very simple. We need to take a mutual respect position on both sides of the equation. We need to remove the conflict. We need to place value back on the land so that the very people who have access to the land can mobilize that inherent value of the land to plan and maximize their production. On the back of that, we will get massive inflows into Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, we must understand, infrastructurally is way ahead of its neighbors outside of South Africa. Way ahead. It is strategically placed to take maximum advantage of the global food supply, which we know is going to double over the next 30 years. We are primarily positioned for that. All we require is to remove the conflict and re-establish values. And country has a, Zimbabwe has a massive future. Thank you very much, Steve. Would you, should I take questions first? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, um, we've got a fair, we've got 40 minutes, uh, and unless there are people trying to break the door down, and if people want to stay, we can go on after that, um, because I, I'm very pleased to, I think we've got some very interesting issues on the table here. So what I'd like is to take some, uh, a, some, a few questions, um, possibly short comments, but try to keep your comments down to maybe three minutes or thereabouts uh, before I give uh, our panel time to, to reply. So any comments? Yes. Sorry, sorry. Could I ask people to hold? Because we are taping this um, and we sure. just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, I'm Leslie Marizwa. Uh, I'm Zimbabwean. Um, Thank you for the presentations. You, you paint a very positive picture uh, about the new uh, farmers uh, in Zimbabwe. Um, and I just wondered, from, from, from your research, did you get an impression, uh, or were you able to ascertain how much of uh, the pr production these farmers could improve? Uh, how much could they improve their production? Had they been given the right resources, would, would they be able to actually increase that double the production, or would they be able to actually get the country over and beyond where it was uh, when, when the production started going down? Anybody else? Down here, in the front row, and then the lady behind. Thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, Overseas Development Institute. I wanted to follow up the point that was made about people moving out of their previous jobs and becoming farmers. This strikes me as something that must have had a terrible effect on the rest of production in Zimbabwe. These were, in other words, it was not farmers who moved into better farms. It was people who had been producing one thing, and there was a loss of production in addition to the losses which the last speaker discussed. You don't mention this at all. So that while the production on these, some of these farms must have increased, production of whatever they were doing before must have gone down. And, if you, and I, I would... I was really shocked at the point you both made that it took 20 years for, to make a farmer, not to make a farmer farmer, but to make a farmer, which is vastly more than in any other type of activity except possibly a surgeon, uh, which does strike me as an additional argument against small farms. Yes, the lady behind, yes. Mm. Sorry, could, could you? Yeah. 
You'll have to excuse me. I'm I'm an economic development consultant, so I'm very interested in your book, and I had the opportunity to look at some data and reports that are coming out of Zimbabwe that are recent, for example, the report produced by the Development Bank of Southern Africa and also the French Agency for Development. And my main interest, basically, is that... um, I am interested in your findings between the correlation between land reform and poverty, which I think was the key driving factor for land land invasions and people wanting to take the land back. Um, Looking at Zimbabwe at the moment, about 20.9% of the population is living in food poverty. And recently the UN has actually called for more food aid. And looking at a staple crop like maize, for example, according to the World Bank, in 2010, Zimbabwe needed to import 400 tons of maize. Why is that if this land reform is such a success? And then there are also other issues of interest around land reform. Um, Only two weeks ago, Interfresh, which is um, a listed private sector company, which specializes in agriculture, um, specifically in citrus farming, um, soya beans and seed maize, have actually had 46% of their arable land confiscated by government and given to another party. And this is land that actually has crop on it. Uh, We're talking about over 1,500 acres of land that's just been taken away from them at a time when they were in in negotiations with um, other investors who were interested in in investing. So in in, in terms of your book and your findings, where does that put Zimbabwe? Um, uh, Do you want to come back? Yeah. Okay, we'll ask the speakers to come back now and then... Uh, take some more. Let me go through some of these and then I'll pass it on to other people. Um, Your question, could you improve the production of resources? Absolutely. Um, Maize production is largely fertilizer dependent. If you double the fertilizer, you double the production of maize. So these farmers could produce a lot more if they had the inputs, if the inputs were available. But also, to answer your question, There is something specific about farming. It took the white farmers a generation to learn how to farm. It's taking, it took the 1980 land reform farmers a generation. Bill Kinsey has done excellent research on this. It took a generation. It's taking these guys a generation too. And major land transfers seem to always go through that. And I think that those, but the two points are linked because As people learn how to use their farm, they also learn how to use the resources. They also learn how to use inputs and how to farm more productively. And so if if these farmers had the resources, they could do better. Now, I want to stick my head out and say it is a myth that Zimbabwe is the regional breadbasket. It is not normally a food exporter. If you look at the 20 years before independence, Zimbabwe exported maize net seven years only. Zimbabwe exports maize when it rains and it imports rain maize when it doesn't rain. And so we shouldn't think about this, this myth of Zimbabwe and the year 2000, for instance, which is, which had, which is what Charles Tafts always cites, and apologies for misspelling your name. Um, the, what he always cites was the best year in 30 years. 
mean, this is was a, a absolutely unusual. You don't compare against that. You compare to the 1990s average. And what we're seeing is we're getting production now, which is up to the 1990s average. Now, one other comment, and then I'll stop, is most of the land has gone to 170,000 small farm families. And this is, these are the ones that we were really looking at. Some of the land has gone to the cronies, some of the land has gone to the elites. We estimate that about 5% of the farms and about 10% of the land did go to the elites. But we think that shouldn't be used as a counter to the rest of the land, which is actually being used by 170,000 farmers. And one of the things that is also in the global political agreement is that there should be a land audit. And I think that would put some check on the land grabs that have taken place. But, you know, let us concentrate on the majority, both with the majority of, of the farmers and the majority of the land. Well, uh, I think the key point is we, we actually visited Interfresh and we saw the vegetables and we saw the chilies and we heard all about it um, and we visited all the farms in the area um, and clearly uh, a lot of people are very upset about what has happened. We can't say anything more because it's happened since in the last couple of weeks. Um, but certainly we saw, like you're saying, a very productive land and um, some very interesting work done with, with vegetables and exporting of, of vegetables. Um, Sorry, just to add what, uh, to what Joe was saying about the breadbasket issue, that um, it was the, a small part of Zimbabwe, the Mashona land central, not all of the cent Mashona land central, but part of um, those Mashona land provinces, which are in what's called agroecological agro regions two and uh, one, which have got high agricultural potential. So these have been the breadbasket, but not for the region, but for Zimbabwe. I just want to go back to this whole business of, of, you know, the elites and so on. I mean, let's, let us accept, and it has, that 10% of the land has gone to elites and cronies and so on. Are we going to worry about that 10% or are we going to worry about the remaining 90%? And I think the book is about the remaining 90% and the 99% of the farmers who are farming that land. And I think that we should not be swayed and stopped just because the cronies are indeed taking land. And there's somebody down at the front there, and then I'll take the lady there, and then the gentleman here. Hi, my name's Trevor Grundy from German Radio. Joe, um, it strikes me what you're saying is that Mugabe's fast-track land reform started rather badly, and it was extremely violent, but ended successfully. Under the circumstances, would you like to see Mugabe's fast-track land reform repeated in South Africa? <laughs> <laughs> that would create a crisis. Yes, the lady there. 
Hi there. Um, I'm just a general member of the public who liked the title of the event, so came along to it. One thing that's really struck me, um, and I'm just uh, a typical Londoner, is that it all seems to be this white farmer, this black farmer. Why, I think maybe the way to move on would be just to sort of say, well, actually, let's have some competition here for the most elite <laughs> farmers there are in Zimbabwe, regardless of colour, and get on with it. But is that a very British way of seeing things? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, my name is George Shiri. I'm I'm a Zimbabwean, um, and I guess I I I, I welcome the book. Um, this is not the only empirically based study on this question that has appeared on the scene, certainly in the last few years. This is probably the fifth or sixth. And I'm making that remark because this, as I'm not an empiricist of any kind, I'm not hard-nosed in studies, I don't come to this argument in that vein. But I did make the same argument 13 years ago and became so unpopular, even mentioning my name is in itself a dangerous moment. And the reason I said then and now was that if you analyze, if you go to the reason why this was a conflictual issue in the first instance, not only would you begin to understand the violence that produced this narrative, you would also be able to see that in the end it would become a success story. So in that sense, I'm very pleased about your research. The second thing I want to say, those people who talk <coughs> about, about, about the future, you really have to look at what exactly has stood in the way of the 90, 99% of the farmers. No third world government, in my view, can exist without balance of payment support in the way in which the Zimbabweans try to exist, whatever the reasons were. Okay. And the access and the absence of capital from those 90% tells you, say somewhere, go somewhere to explain why it's taken 13 years, if not five years. The third argument I want to suggest is, is this. And this, these are not data which has been given by people from ZANU-PF or you know, people of the same kind. It's rather stuff that's been given by people who knew how to live off the land. You know, the, the, I would not have been involved in the arms struggle in the way that I'm 16, by the way. I would, I would not have been involved in the arms struggle in the way in which I had been if it wasn't to do with the land question. The land question is a pivotal question of making sense of Zimbabwe, which way you like it. And as long as it remained on the table, it was bound to produce the nightmare scenarios that we saw. So that's the lesson we've learned over the last 13 years. <coughs> Where to go now? The problem from the international, so to speak, having been targeted, so to speak, with the, with the, with the albatross of demonizing everything that comes from Zimbabwe, there isn't very much you can say. And I'm afraid those people who seem to, in the face of either empirical studies or ideological hard nosed stuff, seem to think there's some dreamland of the past they can go to. I'm afraid it doesn't do so. You're going to have to think and face up to the things as they exist, not as I would like them to be. And the things, the way in which they exist, that if Robert Mugabe has 80,000 families, that are his cronies. He must be the most popular person on the planet. <laughs> you know? I don't know. And that, that, that stands in the face of 
this kind of <laughs> stuff that has dominated our, our thinking. And it's not just people on the propaganda trail, it's in the academy as well. You know, there, there are some epistemic locating questions in which people fail to ask the proper question. Why have things developed in the way in which they did? <coughs> I end up by saying, you know, a lot of people use the word Robert Mugabe to frighten their children to go to bed. <laughs> it doesn't help you understand what's going on in the book. Thank you very much for your book. Thank you. <laughs> and I'll take one more question. I, I've favoured the front, so could... Could we have the man right in the very back row? <laughs> Pleasant good evening. My name is Xavier Markham. Um, I wanted to ask a specific question regarding, you mentioned in, on the capitalization of farmers before, and I want to ask if you could comment on the role of the Western powers, in particular Britain and the United States, um, in and after the period of you know, the land reform began, comment on their role, because you know, it is a perception of some, I agree with myself, that they somewhat acted in favor of the elites, so to speak, and by elite I mean the white farmer and minority. So could you please comment on that because, yeah. Could, would you like to comment or should we go around the, start ask some more questions? Wait, my mind is away, so hmm? carry on that, I missed that. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna just pick up a couple of these. And oh, sorry, do you want me to talk? Yeah. Oh, fine, right. I want to answer briefly um, the Londoner talking about white farmers and black farmers. Um, and I, I want to say, I'm, most of my life, I've been a mathematics teacher's in, teacher in London schools, nothing to do with this. And I feel actually very uncomfortable spending my time writing about and talking about white and black. Um, but in this case, you can't get away from it, because in 1930, um, an act of parliament, the Land Apportionment Act, defined the land as white and black. And everybody who was living, any black person, family, living and working um, and um, farming um, in land designated as European and white um, should have been moved off. Um, and it was only in the 50s they were. So everything that happened in Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe because of the 1930 Act, which got changed 44 times made stronger, sometimes less stronger, defined in terms of who could eat in restaurants, that if a white person married a black person, then they could go to the restaurant of the, um, the, the race of the husband, not the wife, and 44 times up till 1964. Um, so, unfortunately, at the point, there is history that defines this. But I can agree, it's a very uncomfortable situation. And I look to the future when we'll talk about farmers. Thank you. I, I wanted to pick up actually one of Sheila's comments that I, that I missed last time. I, and also Charles Taft's. The production, the cut in production of industrial production was structural adjustment in the 1990s. The textile factories that consumed the cotton didn't close during the land reform, they closed during structural adjustment. And it was the structural adjustment that really caused the sharp reduction in industrial jobs. And so that was part of the process which led to having more people unemployed. And they were, it was also structural adjustment, by the way, that drove the doctors to South Africa. More doctors went to South Africa under structural adjustment than went under the land reform under hyperinflation. Now, 
I think that's an important picture to see because the industrial sector was actually already being run down before the hyperinflation period. Hyperinflation, by the way, was not about land reform. Hyperinflation was because Gideon Gano printed money in vast quantities, and if you print enough money, you get hyperinflation. Um, one of the problems for the small farmers is that we talk about sanctions. The rhetoric is that sanctions only apply to the elite. But in fact, European Union and UK sanctions also apply to all 170,000 land reform farmers. And that's because all aid to Zimbabwe is channeled through NGOs, and NGOs have as part of their contract that they are not allowed to work with land reform farmers. So that a number of NGOs who are doing some quite interesting work, for instance, on marketing, are not allowed to work with the land reform farmers. Um, and that keeps them undercapitalized. Now, that's had this real effect that the only people who could be successful land reform farmers had to have money from somewhere. They had to have money from the city. They had to bring cattle from the communal areas. And so that creates part of the spread that you saw. The people who were undercapitalized just don't survive. Um, final comment on South Africa. I don't know anything about South Africa. But I would say one thing which makes the Zimbabwe land reform special. One was that two things. One was that the liberation movement was about land. And if you look, and it was a rural people who were doing that liberation movement. If you look at South Africa or Mozambique, these were urban liberation movements. Zimbabwe is a rural liberation movement. And the second thing is what Jeanette talks about, this passion for farming, this sense of Zimbabweans that you can actually make money farming. And that's true for the elites as well. The people who have taken larger farms are actually using those larger farms because they think they can make money at it. And I don't see that happening in Mozambique or South Africa or other countries in the region of this passion for farming that makes the land reform work. So I'm not sure whether it would work in South Africa or not. Thank you. Um, uh, I did actually grow up in South Africa myself where um, you weren't even allowed to marry or even have uh, other more interesting kinds of relationships with somebody <laughs> of a different color, color without being put in prison. Uh, and where the Land uh, Reform Act of 1913 allocated 87% of the land to white farmers uh, and crowded the uh, African population onto, onto 17%. And where, interestingly, although there's been politically a demand for land reform, it has not had the same kind of passion behind it, perhaps not yet, uh, and I think because obviously South Africa has become a much more urbanized society for the reasons that, um, that, that we know about uh, and were the points that were made. Could, could I just make a point? Um, I'm a little bit concerned about this notion that it takes somebody 20 years to learn how to farm a farm, especially given that I suspect quite a lot of the people who came onto these farms had been farmers before. Uh, I think it's very important to focus on the fact that what makes a farmer efficient is less what goes on on the farm than what happens off the farm, most especially uh, how easy and effectively they can access the inputs that they need, 
and those inputs would include credit, but they would also include decent seeds, agricultural research, uh, extension services, uh, and how easy it is to get the stuff off the farm uh, and to market on reasonable terms. Uh, talking before this meeting with, with Charlie Tafts there, he tells me that there are parts of Zimbabwe now where the roads are as difficult to drive over as they were when I went back to Uganda in 1987. <clears throat> if it takes you several hours to drive 20 miles down what used to be a good road, as it did when I went back to Uganda in 1987, then it's going to be very tough. I don't think that's true of a lot of places and probably not as bad as... Well, I was told there are bits of this, but in any case, yeah, okay, 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 I take that. But it is certainly true, it is certainly true that the overall level of services available to people uh, were systematically undermined over that period when the... Yes, sure, I know. Wait a minute, the last 10 years, okay, the last 10 years alone, both cities and towns of Zimbabwe, yeah. right? have been run by the very institutions that the West were saying were the good boys. It wasn't to do with it wasn't to do with the government. It wasn't to do with ZANU-PF. No. You know, the cities and towns of Zimbabwe and the infrastructure was maintained, run by, planned by the MDC establishment. Now, the question we can, have to, can, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Before you make this sweep, which you seem to be making, we really need to look things as they exist. Yes, the infrastructure in Zimbabwe towns and cities and roads has gone, has gone ape, 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 ape shit, but the reason for it has nothing to do with this unquestioned, you don't say. We can point the finger to who is in the driving seat, under whose watch. And that has happened under the watch of the MDC. Can I say that I'm, I don't want, I think we don't want to get detoured into, a, into pointing <laughs> fingers. The critical, I did not, I did not. The issue that I'm making is that if, there's, if we're going to move forward, as, as I think people want, the point about who's to blame for the fact that infrastructure and other services have declined is a political issue that has to be resolved in Zimbabwe. But the fact is that if farmers are going to be given the opportunity to develop, then those services have to be reconstructed. It seems to me that there are two big issues that need to be resolved. The one is the issue of property rights, uh, because of course the possibility of getting credit the possibility of getting credit and so on. And, and so I would certainly support the fact that if we accept that, uh, that the land redistribution is, has been decided and is not going to go back, then it is critically important to give these farmers property rights so that they can actually get on and develop their farms. And of course, this is something that uh, I would strongly support the proposition that this is being blocked by the fact that it's very difficult for donors to buy into this uh, because of, you know, we, we all know the reasons why. But it does seem to me that, that the issues of property rights and of finding a package of solutions that are going to provide these farmers with better inputs is what is at issue now. And I don't know whether perhaps Charlie Tafts might want to say something about that. And uh, whether our, whether our, any other people on our panel might want to say, yes, could we ask for, could we have the? Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think it was on the very issue of property rights I wanted to say. Uh, how can you put the property rights in concrete before the majority of people get property? I mean, the, the whole thing about uh, uh, land reform was to actually empower people by giving them property rights. And when they have property, rather than this gentleman who came in here and he says, we've done this and we've done that, and we want property rights, you know, put in concrete. We want property rights when people have property. I want to make a, yeah. a quick intervention on property rights. One is two, two comments. Although technically the rights of the people who are there are insecure, one of the things that we found was that people were investing and reinvesting substantially. The people who are on the small farms felt secure. Now, the second thing is that Teddy wants property rights so that land can be mortgaged. The whole point about land mortgage is that's how you lose the land. Yes. So you want to work for other kinds of credit systems like contract farming and some of these other systems which don't require that people be happy, will lose their land. We've just done a land reform. Giving, doing freehold property rights is exactly saying, okay, we're going to let the land reform be reversed. And this is exactly what happened in Brazil and exactly what happened in another... Now, there's a huge debate going on in Zimbabwe about how you would define property rights that don't involve mortgaging land. And this is, this is going to go on for another five years, I think. But, but the point is that the people who have these farms feel that by investing in them, they are secure. And the people who are doing the contract farming systems for cotton, for tobacco, are accepting people who have just an offer letter. And so there is a security of tenure which is working. So we shouldn't worry too much about trying to get land mortgages when contract farming and other systems will provide the credit if the money were available. Sorry, I, right at the very back, I think people have been trying to get my attention for a long time. So could you... Oh, thank yes. you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is Danny Derrera. Uh, I'm a Zimbabwean. <clears throat> I've got a question for Charlie, who's the, the, the chairman for Commissioner Farmers Union. Uh, from his data analysis, he advocated that uh, before 2000, the production in farms was very fantastic and Zimbabwe was able to export so many uh, tons and all that. But my question is, in 1998 in Zimbabwe, there was food riot, and these commercial farmers were still occupying the farms. Why is it that we had food riot in Zimbabwe if the production was such a good uh, thing which, of which they could able to export? We also need to understand the modalities which these new farmers are operating in. Because these new farmers, we cannot compare these new farmers uh, who are coming in without money, without input, to compete uh, with those who were there before, who were being supported by, what, by whatever government which, 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 which was supporting them, and uh, for, for various reasons. But the government which is there right now is supporting these new farmers in, in, in a hardship way 
and the modality cannot be compared. In that sense, uh, Charlie, I want you to reverse your, 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 your data analysis and <laughs> agree with me that, no, yes, there was food riot because of our, 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 our mischief. I think it's only fair at this point to give Charlie a chance to respond and possibly to make some comments if you have any about particular policy things that might be done to actually improve the situation. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just, uh, it's very concerning to me that uh, this whole thing is very simplistic and it's been um, cut into political lines. Really, this is beyond that. We need to find a solution for Zimbabwe where Zimbabwe can move on regardless of politics. Because at the end of the day, it's the population of Zimbabwe that is at stake. And we can't wait another 5, 10, 15 years with all due respect. We need a solution quickly, and we need to act on that solution and take the country forward. In terms of the food rights, um, where we are geographically in Zimbabwe, agriculture is a very fine business because the weather is so variable, and you have to mitigate your production. And the way you do that is twofold. One, you increase the um, storage water to mitigate through irrigation, and the other is in good years you carry strategic stocks. In 1998, the strategic stock supply had been vanished in 1997 to raise capital, and we had a drought and there was no backup system. That is what happened in the rights in 1998. So farming is not simplistic. Farming is part of a bigger business cycle in which it is a contributor to the overall benefit of that country, and that's what we need to reinstate. But regardless of colour and regardless of, of uh, politics, please, we need to put this beside us on. Sorry. Um, can we have the gentleman in the front down there? Yes. And then perhaps the man sitting behind him who's had his hand up for a very long time. Um, uh, my name is Tawanda. I have two questions, and this to you, Charlie, again. Uh, the first relates to the issue of compensation. The issue is still unresolved, and the Commercial Farmers Union is unhappy with the level of compensation that's provided for in the Constitution. And the Commercial Farmers Union has also gone to the SADC Tribunal, uh, challenging you know, the issue of land redistribution as well as level of compensation. And currently, some people who used to be commercial, you know, some of your members have gone to the African Commission. So the question I have for you is what's your organization's view regarding compensation? Is it market value? If it is, do you not see a problem of affordability? That's number one. And linked to that, the second question relating to the issue of sanctions. And we've talked about the need to ensure that uh, there, is, there is finance and that, you know, there's agriculture, there's an upstream and downstream industry. So money needs to come into the country. Agribank, which, was, which used to be the land bank, then became the Agriculture Finance Corporation, then became Agribank, was the one that was pivotal to why farmers in Zimbabwe were being able to become the kind of farmers that they were. That bank is now under U.S. and, uh, and EU sanctions as um, are other you know, banks within Zimbabwe. Will you now be going to campaign for the removal of sanctions because we now want to say history has happened, but let's now move forward as a country? Yes. Um, 
I've just been handed a note which tells me that unless we stop the meeting at 8 p.m., uh, we are not going to be able to leave the building this evening. <laughs> um, so I think that means that we are not going to have any further uh, questions, unfortunately. Uh, unless you prefer to spend the whole evening here, the whole night here, I'd be quite happy to have that. Um, so I'm sorry, but um, so this means if I could uh, ask for the speakers to respond and perhaps Charlie could answer that final question at the end. Could I also say that we're um, possibly, uh, the members are prepared to sign books if you've, if you've acquired any? I don't know if, are, are there, there was a place on sale? Yes. So um, we will, we'll have one quick round uh, and perhaps, perhaps Charlie, if you could answer that final, that Mr. question. Chairman, just about at the issue of compensation, yes, this is um, uh, a very emotional issue and it's an issue that definitely needs to be dealt with for the country to move forward. But what I must ascertain here is that it, this is not about paying a group of white farmers. This is about re-establishing the value chain in, uh, of the country as a whole, the, the greatest part of that being the agricultural land or the land base, which now is dead asset because it it's, uh, belongs to government and is unable to be traded or borrowed against. So we've come up with a, a very uh, comprehensive um, program which is affordable because there's no point, in my view, taking the government to task for the next 20 years, holding them responsible to pay the money. It's going to hold Zimbabwe back. Let's create a system whereby we can reevaluate through a bond issuance against which those bonds have a value, and the people that are owed money can raise money against the bonds, giving the government a period of time, probably 10 years or more, as the economy recovers to pay off those bonds over that period. It's an affordable system. It removes the conflict. It reevalues the whole value chain, and the country can move on in its entirety. That's what we're proposing. Thank you very much. Okay, could I ask the, the speakers for a final Final word. Well, the most important thing is the lots more stuff in the book. This is, was based on huge amounts of research, and not just by us, but by a lot of other people. Book is for sale. We have some copies of the book. We'll sign it if anybody cares. I do want to say one thing on compensation. I'm actually in favor of compensation. And I think the people who lost their land to Cecil Rhodes need to be compensated. And I think the hundred... And I think the hundred... And I think... And I th I think the 100,000 families who were evicted in the 1940s and 1950s need to be compensated. And I suppose the 4,000 white farmers need to be compensated too. Uh, any other comments? No, yeah? I think we're, that's fine. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much indeed for what I think has been a very interesting evening. I'm particularly grateful to Charlie for coming all this way to talk to us. I might say I'm also very impressed by the product, productions, products of the Zimbabwean educational system because we've had some really very, very interesting and persuasive comments here this evening. So thank you very much indeed.